Hello, and welcome to the Literati Cast. I'm Jennifer Loughran, and I'm a senior agent at the Andrea Brown Literary Agency. I rep kids' books from baby books through young adult, and on this podcast, I bring my kid-lit expert friends in to dish the dirt about all things children's book industry related. <laughs> this week is all about biographical picture books. My guest, Lisa Klein-Ransom, is the author of more than a dozen award-winning and beloved nonfiction picture books, including biographies of everyone from little-known 18th-century musician Joseph Boulogne to Louis Armstrong, sports stars like Satchel Paige, Pele, and the Williams sisters, freedom fighters like Harriet Tubman, and so many more. She's going to talk about writing nonfiction and also introduce us to her very first middle-grade novel, which drops this month, Finding Langston. Let me see if I can get Lisa on the line. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Jennifer. How are you? I'm so great. I'm so glad you could be here. I am delighted to be here. I'm I'm uh, the biggest fan of your show. Oh, thank you. So we're going to get into a lot of subjects like research, nonfiction versus historical fiction, and a lot more. But before we get into it, first of all, can you give us the nutshell version of your path to publication? Okay, so um, my path to publication is a little bit um, non-traditional, um, in part because um, my husband was already in the business. Um, my husband, James Ransom, and he's an illustrator. So he was already illustrating and working with editors. I happened to be home. Um, we had just had our first um, child, Jamie, and I was home and not really happy about being home. I, I love being a mother, love my daughter, but I was really not pleased um, about being a stay-at-home mom. Um, so I was doing a lot of complaining and James, <laughs> I think in an effort to just uh, get me to relax, said, you know, why don't you start writing? I mean, you, you probably miss writing. I have been working for many years as a copywriter um, in advertising and I've always loved writing. So I said, all right, well, what am I going to write about? And he said, why don't you um, write about Satchel Page. I have this great book and I thought this was a stupid idea because I really hate baseball and I didn't know anything about Satchel Page. <laughs> so I um, read the little bio of Satchel Page and thought I could write this story, but I would, it wouldn't be a story so much about baseball, but it would be a story about a man who took the game of baseball and made it his own. So I started writing. I contacted one of James's editors, Stephanie owens Murray, that he was working with. And um, asked her if she could take a look at it. She agreed to take a look at it. And um, she said she thought I had a really nice writing voice. And so I was really pleased and encouraged and thought that meant that she would immediately buy the story. Um, and she didn't. She, she worked with me for months and months and months on end until years in, she offered me a contract for Satchel Page, And so... When I started writing the book, my daughter, Jamie, was about three months old. And by the time the book was released, I'd had um, three more children. So I had four children by the time the book actually came out. So it was a really long, long path to publication. Wow. <laughs> so we're talking like yes, generations, yes. not moments. Exactly. <laughs> um, so you have three books that are pretty new. And so I want to talk about all of them today. But just because readers might not know all of them, I'm going to just give a little mini description. Um, Before She Was Harriet is a poetic picture book and verse about the multifaceted life of Harriet Tubman. Game Changers is a picture book biography of Gen, this time about Venus and Serena Williams. 
And then out this month, Finding Langston is your debut middle grade novel, historical fiction set in the 1940s, in which a boy discovers and is helped by the poetry of Langston Hughes. So when I'm looking over your extensive and varied catalog of books from Satchel Page to Langston, <laughs> Langston, I do see some common threads and themes. Um, poetry and music. You have a lot of books about like how love of reading and words can help kids, maybe lesser known aspects of heroes. Um, and I also love how your, even your prose is quite lyrical. Do you have a background in poetry? I do not have a background in poetry, but I love um, I love reading the works of writers who have a very kind of lyrical um, style. Uh, writers like Toni Morris in particular, um, and the writer Kent Haruf. So I read their works over and over and over again, and I hope that one day, you know, my work could reach possibly reach that level. But I just I do try to infuse a lot of lyricism in in my work i just it's what i like to read so it's it's what i i try to write and stephanie owens lurie said all those years ago that you had a good voice and i would say that's definitely true and it's that kind of like when we say what's a good voice in nonfiction, it's this like intangible thing that turns what could be a dry history lesson into a story that you want to hear again and again so what are your thoughts on narrative voice do you have an idea of how new others can develop this skill. So I, um, I, I'll start by saying that, you know, when I was um, young, I felt that I hated history. And I realized later that it wasn't so much that I hated history. It's just, I really hated the way um, stories of historical figures were told. And I felt that it was that kind of dry um, storytelling that you mentioned. And so, you know, we were often assigned these biographies about these famous figures. And I just really hated reading them. Um, I felt that, it talked about, pointed to only um, parts of their lives that were um, about, you know, their perfection. Um, and I, I think that it's good to try to find when you're writing things that make a person most interesting. And that often includes their flaws, um, their interests, all these little, little small pieces of their lives that make them human or relatable. Um, I also think it's important to read a lot um, of um, different styles of writing um, and see if you can infuse that in your own writing. And also, I think relying on memory helps and relying on, you know, what you love to read as a kid, what resonated with you, and to try to make your work a little bit more exciting. How do you decide how to tell your stories? Like, how do you choose this one should be in verse, this one needs to be a novel, or first verse person versus third person? I don't know. I wish I, don't know, I, wish I could say I had more of a formula, but it's it's so much more organic, I guess. Um, for Harriet, I, I wanted a book that would, I wanted to just write this book that was would convey her kind of quiet strength. And verse seemed to me the best way to do that. Um, sometimes it seems to me like the more spare a text is, the more powerful and emotionally raw and intimate it is. And that's kind of what I wanted to convey with her, with Harriet. I also, I, th I feel like, and I'm sorry, I could be totally wrong, but I feel like somehow in verse, you can telescope time a lot. So like you can make a decade pass in a, the space of a page, whereas it might be a lot harder if you were writing in prose. Anyway. Yes, absolutely. And I, well, for game changers, I felt like there was a lot of story to tell and, you know, I had to, I don't know, I, that, that was a little, a little difficult sometimes when I um, have to kind of cobbled together, I had to cobble together the story of two girls 
and kind of span their lives. And I, I felt that that would have been too hard to do in verse. So as much as I love writing in verse, that would have been too difficult to do. So I kind of wanted to get a lot of facts down in that, which is more difficult to do. So, you know, it just depending on the story. And I, as, the, as I'm doing the research, it's kind of revealed to me through the research, so research how I'm supposed to tell the story. And speaking of research, how do you approach the research for these various topics? So my research process is um, probably how I lose most of my days. I spend way too much time doing research. Um, I start, you know, if I'm with the book Finding Langston, you know, it takes place in Alabama. I actually lost probably a week reading about trees in Alabama. I, I, I don't know how I start going down these <laughs> rabbit holes. And I was trying to find trees that Langston would have seen in Alabama that you could also find in Chicago. And then I start thinking about trees and then it goes into something else. So I do, I just do a lot of research, just, um, you know, just going to the library and doing online searches. And so um, probably 75% of the material that I dig up, I don't use. Um, but I do feel like it helps me to kind of immerse me in the time period and it prepares me. It's really like, like my, my prep period for, for, for being in the writing. Like getting into the milieu of the story kind of. Absolutely. Yes. I think all nonfiction writers have probably had the experience of uh, trying to chase down a source for detail they've heard and they want to use. Have you ever had to let go of any story elements because you just couldn't confirm them? Or um, how often does it happen that the real story ends up being different from what you read or heard before? Well, when I was doing um, research for Frederick Douglass, um, I came across this really small passage about um, the story of slaves who used to sneak out late at night and you know dig these deep, deep pits in the ground. And in those pits, they would sneak out at night and one slave maybe knew how to read, but teach other slaves to read. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to take this little piece of research. When I finish writing Frederick Douglass, I'm going to write this story. I'm going to find the story of somebody who did this, you know. So I, um, when I finished Frederick Douglass, I started researching. I could only find two, like I would look, find one book and it'd be like three sentences. I'd find another book, you know, a paragraph. I couldn't find enough to make it um, nonfiction. So I had to make that kind of a historical fiction story. It just wasn't enough mm -hmm there um which was fine which was you know that was fine um but um with the story before there was mozart um you know which is the story of this young boy who is um the son of a slave and a plantation owner um that you know sort of took place in the 1700s i was shocked that after i wrote that story and that was extensive research um not my favorite time in history but after that book was released, there were probably three adult books that were written that had offered conflicting accounts who said that the person I cited as his father wasn't even his father, that that was actually his uncle. I mean, it was just like, then a book came out a year later that said, no, yeah. neither of those men were his father. It was someone else. So it was just, that was, yeah. I, so who knows what the real story is? Well, some of the things are probably lost in the midst of time. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's, Speaking of that, uh, how much will you skirt the line of nonfiction versus fiction? Like, I mean to say, I've had books that I've wrapped where, I don't know, maybe George Washington says, hey there, to a baker. <laughs> and the editor will say, did he really say that? And it's like, uh, probably. We can't know for sure how he greeted random passersby. 
But um, will you ever infer dialogue or thoughts when there's no way of knowing? Or do you stick strictly to everything being documented? I stick to the script. I do not veer at all. I don't try to imagine what they're thinking. I mean, I with Harriet Tubman, obviously, I, like I, you know, imagined that she was feeling courageous. Maybe she was really terrified, but I, I mean, I, I guess I imagined that she was courageous in certain moments, but I ha- somehow wind up working with editors who feel that in no way, shape or form, should you ever use invented dialogue um, that unless you can document, mm-hmm. you know, George Washington saying, Hey there, um, you absolutely cannot use that. So um, I, I've grown so accustomed to that, that I never, ever, um, I never do that. Just, I just don't do it in my work. So speaking of biographies again, a lot of times when we as agents are talking to editors, well, there's kind of a divide of biographies into two camps. Either they're called cradle to grave, meaning like the entire life story from soup to nuts versus slice of life being one particularly meaningful moment in a life. But really there are like a thousand lenses through which to approach a biography particularly when it is a picture book and you have such a limited amount of room. Mm-hmm. So how do you decide what to focus on, what to include, what to leave out? So I, I think, you know, with picture books, I'm always looking for the moment in your childhood that led them to achieve the great thing in their adult life or the reason why I'm writing about them. So I'm looking for that defining moment. Um, sometimes, mm-hmm. like I wrote a book, Young Pele, I mean, the story probably takes place over the span of two years in his life. Um, I don't, I didn't feel that it needed to go much beyond his childhood, but I think in terms of Venus and Serena Williams, it was nice to know those defining moments in their life, their, their father's influence, um, you know, living in Compton, um, fighting against racism and how that shaped their entire lives. So it, it, it really, again, it all goes back to the research and what the research reveals and where those defining mm-hmm. moments are in their lives. When you're deciding on a topic or a person to biographize, if that's a word, do you uh, <laughs> dig around and see what else is already out there about the person? Like, how do you make yours different from others? And Oh, I do. I always look to see, you know, I, you know, you think, oh, this is a perfect idea. Nothing's ever been done about this person before. And then Boop, you just click on and oh, okay, 25 books have already been, been written. So um, if I'm really, really interested in the person, um, I will go and check out every book from the library and see how it was written or if there's something that was missing or that the, you know, the, the part of the person's life that I'm interested in, has that been told yet? Um, and so there were a couple of stories that I've, I haven't been able to do. Like I've, one of my heroes has always been Sojourner Truth. I think there are just too many stories about Sojourner Truth and I can't find a new way in there. So I'm not going to, mm. I'm not going to write that story right now. Um, with Harriet Tubman, I, I had no idea that she lived so many other lives. And that's the only reason I wrote that book because you know, right. there were so many great biographies about her. When you're dealing with biographies of people, maybe people in more recent history, like who have living heirs or like in game changers where the subjects are actually living, do you need to get their blessing before embarking on a biography? You actually don't. Um, I, you know, I, 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 I haven't done that. Um, I trust, I hope that, that they're happy with it, but I don't need to do that. Um, 
but I feel like, you know, I do the research. Um, the one person I've only actually spoken to one person when doing their biography, and that was Robert Battle for my story, my dance. Um, and we met and had lunch and it was really kind of nice sitting and talking to him because he gave me some additional information. I probably wouldn't have been able to research. Uh, he did say after, cause I noticed, you know, you've only written about people who are dead. And so now I'm nervous because I, I feel like you know, <laughs> something could happen, but, um, but you know, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't meet with Venus and Serena. I'm hoping they read the book and they love it. And hopefully one day we'll meet. Um, I did. All- did you uh, get somebody to send it to them? I mean, I feel like you need to meet them. now. I, I feel like I do. I really do. And, you know, um, one of the reasons I wrote the book is because my husband has a huge crush on Venus Williams. So I think that this was his way of like making an introduction. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see what happens. Dinner party is in your future. For yes, sure. exactly. <laughs> Um, so speaking of different kinds of people that you might write about, have you ever had any potentially dicey or grown up topics that you've had to figure out how to like, not dumb down at all, but make understandable for little folks. I'm thinking of a recent picture book biography, not by you. Um, but it's about Billie Holiday Mm -hmm. and her life was like rated R in a lot of ways. And that would be a tough nut to crack for me. Like, how do I make a story about a woman who had like heroin problems and, you know, sexual trauma and all kinds of really big stuff into a picture book? Have you ever had to think about like how to make something like that understandable or topics that you've had to discard because you couldn't figure out how to make them appropriate for a picture book? Well, interesting. Cause I, I've, I've always loved Billie Holiday and I've always wanted to write a story about Billie Holiday, but I couldn't, I couldn't find a way to do it. Um, it's hard. I don't, I'm yeah. not sure that that picture book is successful at it. Cause I think it's for adults really. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. You should read that book. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do want to read that book, but I, I haven't often. I, I just, I, um, I can't say I have a book that I'm, I'm going to be working on um, a middle grade and it's going to, address a really, really tricky subject. I'm not sure how that's going to pan out, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm taking a risk here. I won't, I won't go into the details yet, but I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be tricky for me um, to, to mm-hmm. approach that. It's always, it's always like such a, it's always such a hard call. Like, you know, you want to be able to discuss important topics with kids and find a way to do it that helps them understand something difficult. Like I think slavery in itself is a really difficult topic. And, you know, I I think I've done it a couple of different ways. I think with words set me free, I felt that that I've had some teachers say that they feel that story is very harshly told, but I felt that for that story, it had to be, it had to be told through Frederick Douglass's voice. And when you read his um, autobiography that he is so, angry and so um, filled with um, just disgust at the institution that that needed to be conveyed in the picture book as well. And they need to see the stories of people and how they lived and the raw, honest truth of it. So I felt that, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's a topic where you, there's no nice way to say it. No. And if you said it nice, then you wouldn't be saying it right. Exactly. You know, like, yeah. I don't know. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I think a lot of people think of nonfiction. You mentioned like history being dry or you thought you hated history. A lot of people think of it as being kind of academic, which is, you know, 
not true. But um, but I do wonder, do you ever think about things like Common Core or curriculum standards or what teachers will think or anything when you're thinking of a topic? I never, ever think of that. Um, I wonder, I don't know, I wonder, do writers think about do that? You just, you just, Sometimes I think they do, you just, yeah. I feel like you just, I just want to write a great story. And I feel like if you write a great story, um, it will connect with readers, hopefully, and teachers and librarians, and then you you have the opportunity to share something, share information, share history, share something that maybe hasn't been told or told. You know, you're telling it in a new way, and you're 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 adding something to the curriculum. So I, you know, I never, but I never think about, you know, I don't have them in mind. I don't have teachers in mind or curriculum in mind when I'm writing. I do think it's something maybe good to think about after you've written it, like in the marketing phase, like, okay, how yes. could a teacher use this in the classroom? You know, how could, uh, how can a librarian or an educator talk about this book with kids? Like that's good, but I do think it would be tough if that's informing your starting point. Like that yes. seems like it might dampen the enthusiasm a little bit. Absolutely. I mean, I have to say that after I write a book and then the publisher sends me like the teacher's guide or the educator's guide, I'm always you know, so pleased and interested. Like, oh, that's an interesting way to talk about this book. I hadn't <laughs> thought of that. I mean, it's. I think it's it's wonderful to make those connections with literature. So it's certainly important. So I'm happy to see it being done. Make those connections being made. So you've been around the block. You have a lot of books. Um, have you seen publishing change how it approaches nonfiction over the years? Um. Yes. Um. Certainly. The picture books have gotten shorter. I mean, when I started, you know, you could just write, 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 and just shove all that, shove all that text on a page and it would be fine. Um, but now it seems to be like 1,000 words is the, that's the magic number. Do not exceed 1,000 words. Um, uh, so mm. I have to, you know, really cut the writing, which I'm happy to do. Um, as my writing has evolved, you know, I, I realize I don't need to write every single, you know, thing, every single detail. So um, I like that they're they're shorter, they're more concise. And I think that that just really fine tunes your writing in general. Um, and it seems like every topic can be discussed. Like you could find a way to tell every story, which I love. And speaking of not having to write down every detail, a lot of that is because some of those details are in the pictures. So yes, I, oh, isn't that a beautiful segue? Yes. So <laughs> uh, I would be remiss not to talk about your husband, James, who illustrates the majority of your books, which makes it way different from how most authors and illustrators work together because most illustrators and others do not work together at all. Mm -hmm. So how does your collaboration work? So we interestingly don't spend a whole lot of time working together. People often say, Oh, it must be so nice. You know, working with your husband you know, imagining us side by side. We work in completely separate spaces in the house. Um, and the only time we're really collaborating is when we discuss projects we'd like to work on together, you know, often when we're having breakfast or running errands. And um, also he listens to a lot of the drafts as I'm writing them. And mm -hmm. he gives me some feedback. And then I, I'm able to see his works in progress when I go into the studio. But typically, you know, I write the manuscript I work with my editor, um, you know, it goes off to him and he starts illustrating it, you know, anywhere between one and three years after I finish writing. So by the time he starts wow. illustrating, 
he could ask me any question. I have no idea what he's talking about because I've written, you know, <laughs> long forgotten. <laughs> do not remember anything about that book. <laughs> his style varies a lot from book to book. You know, maybe it's more painterly in one and, or collage inspired in another. Is that just an organic part of the process or do you two decide on a look together or what? Um, he would kill me if I weighed in on anything related to <laughs> how he should illustrate a book. I'm often surprised by what he chooses. I mean, when he, we, when I finished Game Changers um, and he started illustrating it two, two years later, he said, you know, I'm going to do this book in collage. And I thought, Oh, please, God, no. What do you, what do you mean collage? Yeah. And he said, well, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try it because he'd never done a book in collage before. And, it looks amazing, oh, by the I, way. I, I think he did a great job. But it was because he hadn't done a book in collage, you know, it, it took a little bit longer and I was just getting very anxious. But, boy, he really um, knocked it out of the park. But I think that for him, just as I decide the ways in which I'm going to tell a story and I have to figure that out on my own, you know, he – you know, looks at a text and decides, you know, this could be pastel or it could be, you know, collage. And I think that, you know, as artists, we're always looking to challenge ourselves. So, you know, I love that. I love that he he's not interested in just doing each book in oils and that's it. He always wants to challenge himself. And, you know, I, that's that's kind of what's nice with having a creative partner. You are quite prolific. So what does your day-to-day writing routine look like? It's a mess. <laughs> I, um, my my day to day routine is I'm so unproductive. It's not funny. Um, I work in the center of my house, and I'm often interrupted um, by the kids, the dog, the phone, errands, um, cooking, it's traveling. Um, but on the days when I'm not, you know, when it, it's quieter, I just cram a ton of stuff in. I just try to get a lot, a lot done. Um, so I, because my travel has picked up a lot in the past year or two, I find I'm doing a lot of reading and taking notes when I'm on the road. And so I'm still not great with writing in a hotel room. But when I get back to my desk, because I've done a lot of research and reading, I can sit down and be prepared to, you know, just sit and write. Um, yeah. I, for me, I find hotel rooms are really good for answering email. I feel like yes. I whipped through a yes. lot. Yes, exactly. exactly. So we've been talking so much about nonfiction biographies, but the latest from you is your debut novel, Finding Langston, oh, which is yes. in the stores now or will be by the time this podcast comes out. So what was the inspiration behind this book? So I read the book, um, Isabel Wilkerson's The Warmth of Other Suns, The Epic Story of America's Great Migration. And this story is, it, it's probably one of the best books mm-hmm. I've ever read in my life. Um, in part because, you know, it's the story of, it's, it's my history. It's, you know, my father was born in Shelby, North Carolina. My mother was born in Charlottesville, Virginia, and they both uh, moved north when they were young. And I just, I love these stories. So I realized I really want to tell the story of a young boy who moved um, north and how his life would have been impacted by that move. And that's how I came to the story of Langston. It's also the story of my love of libraries. I mean, I grew up with a mom who loved to read and we spent, you know, a lot of time in the library. So I wanted to be sure to tell that story as well and how, um, how books can transform lives. So that's kind of the story of Langston. Did you find it harder or easier to write a novel than to write nonfiction picture books? Um, it was both. Um, it was easier because I tend to want to write a lot. 
Um, and mm-hmm. so I could just ride and ride and ride away. And it was, you know, it was fine. Um, but because I was new to novel writing, you know, I'm unfamiliar with plotting or, you know, all those types of things and, you know, the story arc and all that. So that was a little bit of a learning curve. Um, but it helped, it helped, um, you know, being a, an avid reader of a lot of middle grade and YA. So, you know, a lot of these things are kind of ingrained because I'm, I'm reading a lot of it. So um, I just, I loved it. And I look forward to probably, you know, writing primarily middle grade in the future. Yes. Nice. Uh, did you find the nonfiction tools in your arsenal like research or outlining, I don't know what, <laughs> did you find those tools that you've developed over the years useful in novel writing? Absolutely. The researching, um, because like I mentioned, I spent so much time researching that actually helped. And um, I had actually done some other research for other books on in that time period. So I had a ton of notes um, and it just, it, it gave me, I had, a, I have just files and files of information and all of my notes available. So it did make it a lot easier to um, write the story. And I just feel like it's, it's, there was such a freedom I feel like in novel writing that I often don't have in the nonfiction. Um, it just, it just made it a lot more fun. I, I don't know. I could Cause you make can make up, up dialogue. Yes. What? Wow. <laughs> you can say anything. It could be, you know, it could be any kind of day. I don't have to go back to 1922 and see what the weather was. I could actually just make up anything. Uh so let's say our listeners have read Finding Langston, love it. What are some other books that you recommend that they read next? Well, you have to read Warmth of Other Sons. Um, mm-hmm. um, also, you know, the book that it's a classic, but Lorraine Hansberry's Raising the Sun. Um, mm-hmm. And I just started a book that I feel like is closely aligned. Um, it's a new middle grade called um, Unbound by Aisha Saeed mm. um, about a Pakistani girl. Um, so I, I don't know. I, those are the, those are the books that I, I, I think could be like closely aligned with, with finding Langston. So like if you're a grown up or, a, or mm-hmm. older, maybe the grown up <laughs> books. And then if you're a kid or a grown up who likes, wants a read alike, it might be interesting to pair. Yes. Unbound yes. I like that read alike. That's a, that's a nice. That's a nice yeah. <laughs> so uh, I always ask, as you know, because you're a longtime listener to this podcast, I always ask my guests what they are obsessed with. It does not have to be bookish, but it can be. Mine is always dumb. I'm Ooh. sure yours will not be dumb. I'm going to do mine first so that you can have time to think about it. <laughs> um, I actually have two this week. What? Uh, <laughs> this is just an excuse, honestly, for me to talk about things that I like, whatever. Um, anyway, one is really quick on Netflix. There is a documentary, new documentary they just put up. It's called 44 pages hmm. and it's about highlights magazine. Wow. Uh, yeah, your old uh, fave from the doctor's yes. dentist's office. Um, uh, it's both a history of the publication and a glimpse into how they put together the 70th anniversary issue. Um, so you get that, like, literally editors puzzling over a, you know, layout of a magazine, the drama of which letter is going to go where and what kind of illustrations they're going to get. Um, they also had some 
Oh, if you like like Mr. Rogers kind of stuff, like going to a factory and seeing how things are made, they have these incredibly restful scenes of the actual things on the printing press, which I love. <laughs> oh wow! And um, and also they just really touching things like kids write to Highlights Magazine and have for seventy years, really kind of unbearing their souls to this magazine, and the Highlights people read and respond to every single letter. And they had a lot of those letters and they were so touching and sweet. Um, it just seems like a really nice, lovely company. And, um, and it was a very interesting glimpse into that world. So any children's media nerds should a hundred percent check out 44 pages. On okay. I not, I'm going to watch that tonight. That, that's what I'm watching tonight. And then, I mean, there are, int- I'd be interested to have a conversation with people because there are other things about highlights. Like the staff is mostly, white and from a particular socioeconomic background, but they also acknowledge that I mean, it's a family company that's been in the same family for 70 years. So they acknowledge that they have to reach outside of their own comfort zone <laughs> or, you know, and they also are located in a small town in Pennsylvania. So they have to really work and make an effort to be inclusive of all kinds of yes. different people and um and they do that work which i think is it, i'd just be interested to have a conversation with you after anyway yeah oh by the way i'm on a highlights panel in september oh, what i've never yeah. been there i'm so jealous well, i really want to go yeah. i've heard it's great so i'm, I'm looking well, forward you're gonna to watch it. the documentary and then you're gonna be like obsessed with going there and okay, you're gonna great. get to go there anyway <laughs> um also then my alternate obsession for people who are not children's media nerds on the funny side, I'm watching a sitcom on Netflix called Kim's Convenience. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a Canadian show about Korean immigrants who have a convenience store. And they're Korean-Canadian kids who are straddling both worlds. It's really cute and funny and just a breath of fresh air. I love all the characters. If you need a little mini break from all the drama, <laughs> the nice 23-minute sitcom, um, Kim's Convenience is a dang delight. Wow. Uh, Lisa Klein-Ransom... <laughs> What are you obsessed well, with? Well, since you did too. <laughs> All right. Okay. I'll allow it. So I mentioned earlier that I am pretty unproductive. And um, part of the reason is I, I work like 10 minutes and then, or, or 30 minutes, and then I have to like take a little break. I need to rest my brain. Um, and when I'm at my desk <laughs> and I need to rest my brain, I click on to apartment therapy. I love mm-hmm. this site. So really what it is, is it's a series of house tours. You can look at a cozy Catskills home or a cute bungalow in Portland or a loft in Brooklyn. And so I, I basically do a lot of house tours and dream about, you know, uh. renovating my own home or moving to Portland or Seattle. And then I realize I can't do that unless I make money. And then I realize I should be working. And so then I <laughs> click off and go back to work. I will say. Um- like real estate websites are my guilty pleasure. And whenever I go, (laughs) if I go anywhere in the world, whether it's fire Island or Rome or wherever, I always look at real estate listings and like 
imagine what it would be like to move. <laughs> uh, we, we should travel together. That's basically yes. what I spend my time doing. Yes. <laughs> I'm like, let's go to an open house while we're in Monterey. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That would be me. So, yeah. Yeah. so Nice. I will put it a bookmark. Okay. And what's your second obsession then? Well, since you mentioned something TV related, um, I did see last night that my new favorite show is coming back on um, in a couple of weeks, Insecure on HBO. Oh, yes. I love that show. So. I just saw the trailer for the new season oh, yesterday. Can't wait! Excellent. We've we've recommended Insecure uh, several <laughs> times on the show. I think, <laughs> but just FYI, I think season three is starting. Yes, yes. I'm excited. Um, Lisa Klein Ransom, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you. I'm. I feel just so honored to be invited. So I'm. I'm <laughs> thank you. I'm now I can get to listen to my own podcast. <laughs> and I'll I'll see you on the internet or in the neighborhood, perhaps, because we're near. Yes, exactly. That'd be great. <laughs> bye. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks so much to Lisa Klein Ransom for joining me. And thank you for listening to the Literati Cast. I will have links to all the books we chatted about and more up in the show notes on my website. That's jenniferlawfriend.com slash literatycast. As always, I'm only able to do this podcast because of the support on our Patreon. So if you like the podcast, throw in a buck a month at patreon.com slash literaticat, and you just might win books too. Also, you can leave reviews on Apple Podcasts or your podcast of choice. Reviews help other people find the podcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. <laughs>